Okay, let's, um, let's pray, shall we? Let's ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Our God in heaven, we praise you for what we have just sung. We praise you that there is grace, abundant grace, now and waiting for us in the world to come. So we ask, dear Father, that you would show us uh, the glory of your grace in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at this passage. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, All good things must come to an end. Uh, That, I think, is probably one of the most English of Proverbs, isn't it? Um, I, I looked it up. Apparently, it was first written by the poet Chaucer. So like hundreds of years ago, back in the 14th century. And but we hear it all the time, don't we? When something good is over or it gets lost, we comfort ourselves with this bleak reality that all good things must come to an end. That if it's good, then sooner or later it must end. We say it all the time. I say it to my children quite a lot. Um, It's just the way things are, isn't it? Nothing lasts. Everything runs out. All good things must come to an end. It's a reflection on the fragility, isn't it, of everything. And and maybe the depressingly English part of this is that we say it about the good things, don't we? We don't say it about bad things. It's all all the good things. They, They must come to an end. But what if there was more? Uh, In Narnia, at the broken stone table, the living Aslan, who'd just been killed by the witch, is asked, what does it mean? And Aslan says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. All good things must come to an end. It's a principle of reality. We experience it every single day, don't we? It's ingrained into life. But what if there was a reality deeper still? And what difference would it make to know that deeper reality? Uh, The passage we have, it would be great if you could follow with us, if you have a Bible or a journal. Um, It begins chapter 2, on the third day. Uh, We have worked our way through the first chapter of John, um, his kind of opening blast of mind-bending declaration. He starts his his book with a great explosion. Um, He he tells us how God himself has come to live among us. That the God-man is Christ Jesus. He's the beloved son of God. And John says in chapter 1 verse 14, he says, We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory, says John, and then he writes a book to tell us what he has seen. And he begins with the testimony of John the Baptist. Uh, Last time we looked at the response of the first disciples. Uh, Ben helped us last time to see a big idea. Um, Come and see that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one you need and his heart is for you. Two of John the Baptist's disciples start following Jesus. Andrew was one of them. The first thing he does, he goes and says to his brother, Peter, come along and see this Jesus. And then Jesus calls Philip to join the gang. And and Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says, come and see this Jesus. Three days on from that, there is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. These disciples have been following Jesus for just a few days at this point. And they all go to a wedding together. 
Weddings were a big deal in Cana of Galilee, in all of, in all of the area. Um, uh, but at this wedding, um, th- th- these wedding celebrations that would have lasted for about a week, at this wedding, there is a disaster. Uh, we hear of it in verse 3 through the words of Jesus' mother. The disaster is they have no more wine. It's the equivalent of a Formula One car running out of fuel mid-lap. Race is over. Or, or of the, the lights going out in a football stadium in the middle of the game. Game over. To run out of wine at a Galilean wedding means celebration is over. The host would be shamed for generations. Be, uh, it would become a fable, the fable of the, the wedding that ran out of wine. Now, we don't even know if the couple are married by this point in the celebration. And nobody is going to shrug their shoulders at this wedding and say, all good things must come to an end and crack on. No. Uh, Jesus' mum, she tells him about this problem. Uh, and they have this kind of interchange, Jesus and his mother. Um, there are some deep currents going under what they say. Uh, she, she's not just making an observation. She's not just saying it's sunny outside, is she? she she's trying to get Jesus to do something. And we're not sure what she wants him to do, but she wants him to do something. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Whatever she's asking, he is refusing. And his reason, he says, my hour has not yet come. He's refusing her, not because it's wrong for her to look to him to do something, but the timing is off. Jesus is not going to get pushed into action. We'll see it as we go through the gospel uh, more and more that, that Jesus will not be manipulated. He will not be forced to meet the expectations of other people. He, he will keep refusing to do what people expect him to do. Why? Because he is the son of the father. And his purpose, his hour, the reason that he came is identified by the father's will for him. And so Jesus here calls his, calls his mother woman. It's not quite as harsh as it sounds in English. It's a respectful way of speaking, but it's not how people spoke to their own mothers. He's shifting himself in relation to her. It seems his mother accepts that. She hasn't got a claim upon Jesus, but she will keep looking to him to do what he thinks is best. So she speaks to the servants. Do whatever he tells you, whatever it is. I don't know what it might be, but if he tells you something, you do it. She trusts him. She's a model disciple in some ways, waiting in expectation. Jesus acts. He does something. Um, His hour has not yet come. He's clear on that. So, So what he does, his action is not the action of that hour, but he does something. And the something he does is seen by some, but not all. You notice that? The servants know what's going on. The disciples know what's going on. But the master of the banquet and the host, they have no idea what is going on. Look at verse 11. Uh, John comments and says, this is a sign. In fact, he says, this is the first of the signs. It's, it's an opening act of something much more. It's the, it's the first scene in a much larger picture. There are six large water jars. Jesus tells the servants to fill them up and then to serve a drink from them for the master of the banquet. And verse 9 says the water has been turned into wine, all the water in the water jars. Now the quantity is crazy. It's like a kind of a thousand bottles of wine Jesus just creates here. It's a lot of wine. Um, And the master of the banquet says this is crazy. And not because he knows where it's from or because he knows how much there is, uh, but he knows the quality of it. 
And that, that was his job, really. And his job was to know the quality of the wine. Excuse me, my notes have failed, but luckily I brought a backup. Bear with me. Seamless. Absolutely seamless. What are we talking about? Uh, something crazy. Yeah, there we go. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, not the quantity um, or, or where it came from, but for the master of the banquet, uh, the, the crazy thing is the quality of the wine. Um, that, that was part of his job. Part of his job was, was to assess the quality of these things. And he knows this is the best wine, not so much better than what had been served first of all. And nobody does that. Nobody saves the best wine till last. But what's going on? Uh, Jesus here is not simply fixing a wedding disaster. Uh, in verse 11, John says it is a sign that points to something. It's a sign that tells of something. And look, look what John says. He says it's the, the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. That's, that's what John wants to show here. The whole reason that John writes all these things about Jesus, he tells us in chapter 20, he says these things have been written so that you might see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You might believe on him and have life in his name. So here in chapter 2, John is showing that believing in Jesus is a response to seeing his glory. You see that there? Look at it, verse 11. Jesus reveals his glory and the disciples who see that glory believe in him. So what does this glory mean? John's already said, I mentioned it in verse 14 of chapter 1, we have seen his glory. And glory is like the, the radiating beams from the sun. It's the, the shining out of beauty. Or, or, or like the sun that sits as a great mass in the center of the solar system and all the other planets orientate themselves around it, it has such significance. That's glory. And John says this sign reveals something of Jesus' glory. There's something in this that shines out of the, the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. That there is something in this sign that tells us of the great significance of the Lord Jesus. And there's something here that is jaw-dropping. So, something here that if we, if we see it, 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 will, it will make our, our hearts melt and our souls cry out, Wow! Look at that! And if we see it, John wants us to believe in him. Uh, John knows that belief that trusting Jesus is a reaction to his glory. He knows that wow of Jesus draws our faith towards him. So we have to ask as we look at this sign, what did they see of Jesus's glory? Uh, I reckon there are a couple of things here. First of all, they see the glory of his power. Uh, I don't know what you make of this sign. Um, is there something a bit underwhelming about it? It's worth us just thinking about it for a moment. And um, uh, as we do so, I want to shock you with some facts. A bit, bit of science here, so you ready for that? Can you cope with a bit of science on a Sunday morning? This, this is pretty complicated. Water is not wine. 
Can we cope with that? And, and the same, wine is not water. There we go. That, that's the science. You got it? If, if you go to a restaurant and you order a glass of wine and they bring you a glass of water, you're going to complain. Or if you order a glass of water for your young child and they bring a glass of wine, that matters, doesn't it? It's not the same thing. They are different things. Uh, what, what is needed um, for wine is not contained in these six water jars. Uh, a water has hydrogen and oxygen in it. I think that's right, isn't it? A wine has other stuff in it as well. It has nitrogen and carbon and, and other bits that make up the yeast and the sugars, which, which make it into wine. So for Jesus to change water into wine, he has to kind of disassemble the atomic structure of the water and then reconstitute it into something else. Uh, the, the energy required to do that is the kind of energy that you get when an atomic bomb goes off. And, and then the same energy required to put it back together again. And nobody notices what's going on here. Now, that's kind of crazy, isn't it, to try and talk about it in that way? Because the point is, the ingredients for the wine is not in the pots. Jesus isn't speeding up a natural process. He's not fixing something that is broken. Jesus is bringing into existence something that was not. He makes something new. That's power, isn't it? That's great power. John told us right at the beginning, the very first thing he told us was that the word was in the beginning with God and is God and through him all things have been created and without him nothing has been made that has been made. He is the author of existence. And then John tells us that that word became flesh and this same person now in chapter 2, this Jesus, he is showing his hand at the wedding. He is the almighty creator. No, no, God isn't, um, God, God isn't a kind of superman. He's not kind of an, an extension, a greater extension of something else that we know. The, the difference that, that can be measured between God and us is not a kind of quantitative difference. It's not kind of us, but on a bigger scale. The difference between us and God is a qualitative difference. He is, he is a different kind. He is an other. He is utterly different. And the sublime majesty of God is seen in his utter dominion over the basic forces of nature. He sustains all existence. And at his will, he makes and he remakes and he forms and he brings into existence what was not. And that's what Jesus shows. This man at the wedding, he shows that he is also that creator God. He makes the water into wine. He brings into existence something that was not. He makes something new. And the disciples see the glory of his power. And they believe in him. The glory of his power. But that's, that's not all that is going on here. It's not simply a display of power. It's also the glory of his happiness. You, you see, Jesus would have shown his power if he had turned the water into stone, wouldn't he? That would show his power, but he didn't do that. He produced a load of wine. Now, at the point when the, when the wedding was ruined, the party was over, celebrations are about to be stamped out, and everyone's sent home, Jesus acts, and he makes wine. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 104 together. 
a psalm where uh, a psalm where the singer celebrates God's creative work and and tracks how the water comes down from the heavens it runs over the hills it falls into the rivers it flows down and it provides life it provides um the the, the means for crops to be cultivated and and it's psalm 104 It speaks about how God, the Almighty God, the Lord God Almighty, He makes all these things. He makes for plants for people to cultivate, and that includes the cultivation of wine that gladdens human hearts. The purpose that God has ordained for wine is to bring joy. That's why wine was so integral to the party. It was fueling their celebrations of this wedding. And so Jesus here at this wedding, he shows his power, he reveals his glory, but he does it by giving something that gladdens human hearts. He's bringing joy. But there's more. In verse 6, there are these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Why are these jars there? What's the purpose of these jars being at this wedding? Well, well, the Jews had a very acute sense of their need to be clean. They had all kinds of traditions to, to, that involved washing, especially when it came to eating. So, so I, the likelihood is that these jars are here at this wedding because the guests are using them to wash their hands. Now, they didn't know about modern hygiene. The, the reason is it's for ceremonial washing. There's a lot of background to this, but the background is really well summed up in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 asks this question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That that is the question of all questions. See, people are made to be with God. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And the whole design of the human soul is restless always until it finds completeness and wholeness in the happiness of being with God. But who can be with God? That's what the question asks. Who can get to God? That's the great question of all time. Who can be with God? And the psalm answers like this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And all of that ceremonial washing was a a continual reminder of this truth. Every hand wash told of the need for inner purity to be with God. The hands were washed and then washed again and then washed again day after day with a reminder always of the clean hands and a pure heart, which is the requirement of entering into the joy of the Lord. It, It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, a clean and a beautiful home is not enjoyed as clean and beautiful if I stomp into it with my mud-clagged boots. I've got to take them off. I've got to clean up before entering. So every hand wash says, I must have a pure heart. I must have a pure heart. I must have a pure heart. Which is crushing, isn't it? Because who has a pure heart? But then at this wedding, Jesus shows his glory. Jesus takes that water for ceremonial washing. And in effect, he says, you're not going to be needing that any longer. He changes that reminder of sin into a celebration of happiness. And it was a sign. It was a sign. Jesus said his hour had not yet come. He's going to keep 
talking about that hour. As we read on through John, we're going to keep on thinking. Jesus is, is here for a particular purpose. He, he has this hour that he has come for. Uh, and it's not yet come at this point, And it won't come until in chapter 12, he says, the hour has come. And what was the hour? Well, he would be strung up like a slaughtered animal, stripped and beaten. And bloodied, he would be hung to die on a cross. That is his hour. And in that moment, in that hour, he would take onto himself the entire load of his people's impurity. And every stain of wrong on every one of their hearts would be counted to him. And he would die under that load. He would take the punishment of that load. He would take the abandonment deserved by that impurity and he would cry out in his moment of death. He would cry out in his moment of death a cry of victory. He would say, it is finished. Because by that hour, by that death, he would gain access. Access for all who would trust him into the eternal presence of God. That was his hour. That was why he came. That was why the water of purification could be transformed into the wine of celebration. The very thing that told of the need for pure hearts would now declare you can have that purification through the work of the Lord Jesus. And he made so much of it. He didn't just make a glass. Well, that would kind of make the point, wouldn't it? But he made loads of it. Far too much. There was an excess of wine. Why would he make so much? Well, listen to what the prophet Isaiah foretold of what would be done when Jesus came. The prophet Isaiah said, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Jesus comes along and he turns the water into such wine, into the choicest of wine. But what does that banquet picture mean? What's the explanation of it? Well, Isaiah goes on and says, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The disciples saw his glory and they trusted him. They entered into the fulfillment of what Isaiah foresaw. Because this is the joy that Jesus brings. He brings a future without death. He he brings a future where the tears are wiped away. He brings a future of, of the joy of being with him where there are eternal joys. You see, Jesus made so much wine to show how much joy he can bring. When his hour came, just before he died, he told those who believe him, he said in John 15, your joy will be complete. He said in John 16, your grief will turn to joy and no one will take away your joy. 
And he prayed for his people in chapter 17. Prayed that they may have the full measure of my joy in them. Jesus made an abundance of wine to show the abundance of joy for those who trust him. Jesus made an abundance of wine to show that the English proverb is a lie. All good things need not come to an end because there is a deeper reality. There is a principle of truth that is more foundational than our experience of every good failing. Do we get that? When when Jesus' mother said, they have no more wine, and she was speaking about that wedding at that moment, wasn't she? But but then in light of what Jesus goes on to do, there's a deeper sense, isn't there? That they have no more wine speaks of the good things that come to an end. That the pleasures, the happiness that we find in this world flee away from us. Eventually, it just runs out. Eventually, we run out. And if we can step off the treadmill for long enough, we will hear it spoken over every part of our lives. The wine failed. Ran dry. And and with that that kind of gloomy truth, if that's the only thing we have, we can say, well, I guess we we eat and we drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The best we can do is say, we just just enjoy it. We have to hoard it and hold it as much as we can until it's gone because however good it is, the, the best of what we have, the good things, all good things must come to an end. All good things must come to an end. Unless. Unless there is a reality deeper still. These disciples, they saw this glory of Jesus, his power, and his abundant happiness, fullness of joy forever with him. And that moment of wow drew their faith to him. They believed in him. But what do you see? And what do you see as you look at this Jesus recorded for us in the scriptures? Did you see even a flash of his glory. Now, this week I saw a kingfisher. Just a, 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 It was a flash of electric blue. Took my breath away. Just a flash. Do, do we see that? Just a, a glimpse of his glory here. Now those water jars did not have what was needed to become wine. That was not a problem for Jesus. Jesus brought into existence what was not. He made something new. And he could do the same for you. You don't need to give him the material to work with. Jesus doesn't need our hearts to have a bit of purity before he can make them pure. Jesus doesn't need us to have some joy before he can make it complete. Jesus doesn't need you to have it all together. It is not a problem for Jesus. Jesus promises those who, for those who trust in him, your grief will turn to joy. And no one will ever take away your joy. Not even death, not even hell, not even the combined powers of every evil force, not the accuser, not not your past, not your failed efforts, not your lack of self-esteem, not what others say about you. No one, says Jesus, will take away your joy. It's not a problem for Jesus. When he promises to give you a pure heart, when he promises to give you a new life, when he promises to give you a forever home and eternal happiness, 
doesn't need you to provide the ingredients to work with. Now those water jars did not have what was needed to become wine. And we have not got what is needed to get to glory. But that's not a problem for Jesus. You see, with Jesus, all good things need not come to an end. For those who trust him, he, he writes a deeper reality. He secures a truth that says all the bad things, they must come to an end and every tear must be wiped away. And his abundant happiness pouring from his infinite heart will supply your joy forever and ever and ever. The disciples saw his glory and they believed in him. What do you see? Now, if you want him to reveal his glory to you, you can ask him to do that. I'm going to spend a moment in quiet just asking ourselves, what do I see personally of his glory and will I trust him?